In the early days of the internet, radical libertarians were scattered, lonely, and faceless. Without direction, they resigned to scour the web, sifting through content providers in a wasteland plagued by YouTube demonetization, Facebook jail, and covert internet censorship. But then, in 2017, the Libertarian Union was formed. Finally, the average Joe Libertarian could find a thriving community of independent podcasters and content providers, all in one convenient location. At Libertarian Union, we'll always have the latest news, interviews, discussions, and even movie reviews. With hundreds of episodes and more added all the time, you'll always find something fresh at libertarianunion.com. Hey everyone, it's Daniel and Robert, The Last Nighters, and we are talking about Swingers from 1996. This is episode 42 of the show. You can find the show notes and more at lastnighters.com slash 42. Before we get into that Google description, let's say hello to my co-host, Double Down. How you doing, hey, sir? Hey, everybody. What's up? I know that Robert and I, we talked a little bit in the pre-show, which is available for our supporters at Patreon, our Patreon supporters. So patreon.com, uh, where do you get that? Um, lastnighters.com slash Patreon. That's where you get that. And we have a live stream, which we're recording right now. So super meta. Uh, and if you're a $10 a month or more contributor in, in our voluntary, like mutually beneficial relationship here, you can watch us do this cranking the sausage live uh you can also get it later on after it's been edited and everything at the five dollar level and at the three dollar you get early access on occasion if we have if we have it done in time you'll, you'll get it early anyway that's at lastnighters.com slash patreon that's a really so, good sales pitch daniel good job yeah it's like kind of if you wanna maybe i'm sold you know maybe you want to try to you know i feel like i'm um mike from the movie john Favreau's character asking nikki for her number maybe something super like that super awkward super awkward super like demure you know like timid lacking confidence and it still kind of worked out for him but we'll get into it we'll get into it uh in just a moment when we do the google description we'll get into the movie but i do have one minor correction and it's related to a listener to our show who is also uh, a member of the Launchpad Media, where you can find our show and his show, Sounds Like Liberty. And we're both part of thelaunchpadmedia.com, where they're always launching new ideas in your direction. He gave us a little bit of feedback on our Green Room episode, where he said that he was a little bit cringy listening to us talk about how the bands and the venues work out who's paying for what and how the tickets uh, happen. He let me know that in his experience, and he's in a band, that when they do that kind of arrangement where the the venue gives you the tickets to go sell, that's all the money you're getting is the, the tickets you sell. You don't get any of the door. Okay, but then how does that change any of it? That's still well, it's just more of a technicality. It's like the the mechanism is different than what we thought. In fact, it was more in line with what you were thinking initially. Um, but in my experience, you know, I, I used to photograph shows. I photographed over 100 shows. I was usually on the list, and I had a plus one and all this stuff. But I thought that the venue paid the artist to be there, and if they had tickets to sell, they would get a portion of the door. They'd also sell merch, et cetera, et cetera. So I think there's probably like a myriad of, of ways and arrangements. But the key thing, and I think our point was that it's all voluntary. They went into it agreeing to the terms and to complain about it later, is a little bit not disingenuous. Understand. Well, it's, it's not like it's, that the venue is, is in it 
to make a profit, to be, uh, you know, to see a return on what they're doing, right? Well, it's like the girl that, you know, fools around with the guy and then the next day she talks to her friends and then her friends convince her that it, she was being exploited or raped or whatever. It's like, you're okay with it at the time. You were there making a decision, an adult grown-up decision. And then later on, you're like, hey, now, wait a minute. That was all messed up. But he shouldn't, we shouldn't have had to do that. No, if you didn't want to do it, don't do it. Yeah, and then there's also learning experience. You know, like if, if maybe you're you're unfamiliar with how those things work, then maybe you get burned the first time and then you don't do it the next time. So who knows? Who knows how it works? As long as it's voluntary, I think we're kind of okay with it. But I just wanted to issue that minor uh, feedback at the beginning of this show from our fellow uh, show member of the Launchpad Media. So thank you for that. Speaking of Nikki, that's Nikki P, by the way. Hey, Nikki, shout out for you. It sounds like liberty. All right, let's get into the Google Descriptione. Swingers came out 1996, rated R, cult film, comedy, drama, one hour, 36 minutes, 7.4 on the IMDb, 87% Rotten Tomatoes and 71% Metacritic, also 71% with the Google users liking it, which is surprisingly low since many of the movies we've seen lately, it's been in the 80s or 90s, and some of those are like not that great of movies. So this is a little odd. But here's the description. (laughs) Tip in that hand. All right, uh, splitting the aces here. A transplanted New Yorker attempting to acclimate to Los Angeles, Mike Peters, played by John Favreau, is struggling to both boost his comedy career and get over his last relationship. A self-proclaimed master of seduction, Mike's buddy Trent Walker, played by Vince Vaughn, tries to show him how to make connections and get the attention of women. Slowly moving toward regaining his confidence, Mike meets the gorgeous and down-to-earth Lorraine, played by Heather Graham, sparking a welcome new romance. Came out October 18, 1996. Director Doug Lyman, screenplay by John Favreau and starring a bunch of their friends, a uh, budget of 250000 and I believe it made close to $4 million. So not a bad return to uh, have some fun with your buddies. Your take so far, Robert? Well, that's kind of the movie for the most part. Um, it's kind of strange to hear the Heather Graham bit in the description of the film since the Heather Graham meeting is at the very, very, very end. It's like in the second to last scene or two. And that's, you know, that's the culmination of his character arc where he gains the confidence for some magical reason all of a sudden to go and chat up a girl, even though there's been no progression in that character arc at any point in the movie. But then all of a sudden he magically gets the uh, the confidence to go chat up Heather Graham. And then he's just like the most suave guy of all time. And then he's going on the dance floor and he's cutting all these moves. And then afterwards, he's like, oh, yeah, by the way, I mean, I went to a bunch of like ballroom dancing classes. It's, it's cool. It's no big deal. So kind of strange to hear that in the uh, description uh, of just the, the summary of the movie. But anyway, yeah, that's that's fine. Yeah, I think it kind of glosses over and it plays up her part significantly. And I don't know if that's a result of like an after the fact writing and Heather Graham became famous, I think partly because of this movie. But um, had she not broken out and become famous i wonder if she'd even be mentioned really at all in the google yeah, description probably probably not she was definitely besides vaughn and whatever the name of the guy for some reason i can't think of the other guy's name i know him favreau or office space? favreau i favreau continually leaves my brain for some reason even though he's gone on to do all kinds of movies he's done all kinds of like iron man movies and you know big movies for marvel yeah, and he was he on friends like, uh, right he was uh courtney cox's um 
super rich uh, boyfriend type in some of that in Friends. I don't remember that, but he did do the remake of The Jungle Book. So he's, you know, a big name dude. But for some reason, I always can remember Vince Vaughn's name, but not John Favreau's name. Is he just more forgettable? Well, he is kind of a whiny little bitch, uh, in yeah. the words of Sue, uh, in this entire Super annoying movie. character. The whole movie. It's, he's the main character. Super cringy. Every time he opens his mouth, it's cringe. Yeah, yeah. Well, by design, of course. Uh, and then Vince Vaughn, he is amazing. He is a ball of energy in this movie. And it's it's interesting because they, they teamed up again to make another movie a few years later called Made, where in essence, they maintained the same style of character, but they made Vince Vaughn so annoying and Favreau's whininess, like protective and noble. Do you recall that? That movie Made? I know we've watched that a few times back in the day. Probably just back in the day. I mean, I know of its existence. I know what the cover of the poster looks like, but I don't remember any of the, the story. Oh, man. Well, we, we might eventually no! get to that one. It's got, it's got Puff it. Daddy as the Red Dragon yeah, and do this to me. the plates on the limo is Double Down. Come on. It's like, uh, like swingers. It's good stuff. It's so I, good. It's I barely so money. made my way through this movie. It's so <laughs> money. You don't even know it. All right. Changing 300. Any scotch will do. Any Glenn. Any Glenn. You got some, you, you know, you double down on 11. It's always every time. So let's talk about this a little bit. Who's the big okay. winner at the casino, Robert? Who's the big winner tonight? Robert is. Not, not Robert's the big winner not at the me. casino. Not John Favreau. <laughs> Come on. Who's the most special lady in town? Come on. I'll be timing you. The shiny. See, he was piece. super annoying. Okay, so Favreau was really cringy, and then Vaughn was just like a, an asshole, like this jerk asshole annoying guy that wouldn't shut up. So both characters were insufferable, and I didn't like either one of them. So no, you didn't like Vaughn, really? I, th I found him to be annoying yet charming in a way. I appreciated that he was trying to help his friend out. I really, that was the only thing that was a saving grace for me, that he cared about his friend and he wanted to see him happy. So he was trying to get him out and do things and get back into the world and get back into the game instead of just moping around, pining for his girlfriend all the time. But man, the way he did it, it if he was, you know, being the insufferable asshole to make somehow John Favreau feel better somehow about himself, maybe. But I don't I didn't get that feeling at all. I don't know. There's a scene at the very end where he's they're eating breakfast and he's like, so I'm the asshole. So I'm the asshole. I'm like, yes, you are. You're all grown's up. You're grown's up and you're grown's up. Our little Mikey's all grown's up. Yeah. Yeah. He um, I think that the the. The story is that Favreau's feeling all this pain from this long relationship that broke up and he's having trouble getting over it. And I've been there. I'm sure most most guys have. Uh, and I think that Fav or um, Vaughn's character had been through that before, but he had experienced it, gotten over it and realized how foolish it was to to put yourself through that, to beat yourself up over it. And so he was trying to help guide his friend to help himself right to realize he doesn't need to mope around and he kind of like doesn't give fucks anymore he's out of fucks to give so he's you know like let's have a good time let's let them know that we're here to have a good time let's enjoy our time together instead of just sitting around the house like like you said earlier and where do they end up going at the very beginning at the very beginning uh well don't they end up going to vegas I mean, that's pretty early in the movie yeah they go to vegas and why do they go to vegas why do they go to Vegas? It seems like a very spur of the moment thing because they were going to go to some party, right? And Vaughn's like trying to get Favreau out of the house and Favreau's like, no, I don't want to do anything. I don't want to go. And he's like, you wear, you put something nice on to wear. We're going to Vegas. He's like, I'm not going to no Vegas. But he ends up talking him into it. Okay, but I don't know why, exactly why they go because he said he had a call back at nine in the morning. Well, and why is, 
Why is Vegas a thing, Daniel? You can answer this. Why is Vegas a thing, like at all? Why does it exist? Yes. Why is it oh. like a destination? Well, okay, so I can answer that a couple of different ways. I mean, one, it's a thing because there was freedom to be able to make capital investment with gangster-style money to create a desert playground. So, you know, you can kind of do whatever you want. There's a lot more freedom. And I guess that is why they wanted to go there, right? Because it's there to have a good time. What, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. They're there to wine, women, and song, gamble, have fun, meet girls. And gamble. Because yeah, it's legal yeah. to gamble there because they have the freedom to gamble there. And they didn't have the freedom to do that in Los Angeles. So due to the economic restriction of freedom, it allowed for the opportunity and the economy to flourish in Las Vegas. That's true. Yes. It's sort of like the uh, Singapore thing, right? Like they don't have very many natural resources, but there's enough economic freedom that they're actually able to be super productive and create a lot of value in the world. Vice versa. On the other hand, you've got a place like Venezuela, which is very rich in natural resources, abundant oil, abundant water, abundant minerals, and all of these things. And it is a shit show due to regressive economic policies and socialism that is suffocating the market and transactions and people's standard of living. Excellent answer, Daniel. That's where I was going with that. If you had other ways to answer it, that's fine, but that's all I needed. All right. <laughs> well, uh, who's the special lady in town, it's Robert. Let's do some Jedi mind shit because they know what you're after. Don't apologize for it. Look at how they dress when they go out. They want you to notice them. What did you think of that statement? Because I know that with the whole Me Too, hashtag Me Too thing, they want to make it sound like if you leer at women or look at them and notice them dressed a certain way, that you're somehow an evil person, even though they're dressing that way for a purpose, as discussed in the movie. Um, but then people try to equate it to, well, if they're dressed that way, then what you're saying is that by dressing that way, they deserve to get something bad that had happened to them and you're victim blaming. It's just this huge convoluted SG convoluted SJW mess when you get into this kind of thing, but because then they're like, well, you should be able to do whatever you want and and be free of these uh, negative things from happening to you. you know, walk down a dark alley, nothing should happen to you. I agree, nothing should happen to you. But if you have situational awareness, you're not going to go down that dark alley. You know, you're not going to put yourself in dangerous situations. You're not going to get blackout drunk and not know how you're getting home or whatever. You know, like these are just common sense things. And, uh, you know, riff from there, if you will. Well, yeah, I mean, this movie is very problematic, Daniel. You know, <laughs> you're, you're triggered right now. <laughs> I'm super triggered. Vince Vaughn was such a misogynist in this film. I don't tell you. Um, it reminded me well, all the things you said of, you know, you, you know, you, you get blackout drunk, you know, it's like, you're right. You, they want to be able to do whatever they want and be free of consequences. Like you should be able to walk down Times Square in a bikini and not get jeered and leered at and that sort of thing. And it's just, you shouldn't be aggressed against, but this, to say that you're ignoring basic human nature is to ignore reality. Now, I remember, you know, I when we went to school, this is like around turn of the century. So it sounds like a long time ago when you say it that way. Which, which century? 19th century? <laughs> turn of the century. At, um, in college, university, if you're an international person, um, I don't remember so much of the college, the Marxism and the socialism, but I'm sure it was there, probably more in the social sciences, but it hadn't per permeated to everything yet. But I was, I forget what class it was, but we were sitting outside that day, so it couldn't have been too serious of a class. 
And we were sitting around in kind of like this drum circle situation. And it was like a sharing time where we are all supposed to ask honest questions and give honest answers. And it came to me and it occurred to me that women, you know, dressed in a certain way so as to attract, you know, attention. So they would put on, you know, makeup in a certain way to, like Jordan Peterson says, to enhance your, to make it look like you're, you know, sexually active or sexually, you know, at the prime. Right. Your, your, your lips are flush and your cheeks are uh, reddened or whatever. Right. And the, the plunging uh, of the necklace is like drawing it to, drawing attention towards the cleavage area or something like that. Right. And I asked the question, like, you know, women like have the, well, wear like low cut shirts and they'll have this big cleavage area. And it's like, are you trying to attract men's attention to your chest? And, you know, it seems like you're doing that, but then you get upset when, you know, the wrong man gives you that attention, you know, like someone who you view is like beneath you. And that was the answer they gave me. The answer was, well, we do it, yes, to attract attention, yes, but we only want the right kind of attention, which is like- from the right kind of guy. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, you know, when you dress like that, you're fishing, right? And a fisherman can't decide what he's going to pull up out of the ocean. He's like, well, I only want the high value fish, like the tunas and the premium fishes, but I'm also going to pull up a bunch of other crap too. Maybe a boot. <laughs> Maybe a boot, like an old tire. And so when you're out fishing and you got your cleavage all sticking out, you know, you're not going to get just the premium tunas looking at you and checking you out. So I think that's just a, a standard common sense thing. But with the the, the extreme left these days, I don't think st- common sense really enters into the equation much. Well, even back in, in the horse and buggy days, like you were just talking about, it still sounded like they had a bit of a double standard, right? They wanted it to be, well, yeah, we're doing this that anyone can see, but we only want responses from people that we view as desirable. But there's no right. like filter for that. There's no communication of that other than utter rejection of these types of guys. And then you get uh, incels and things like that who are guys that just get rejected or, or what have you. Um, and, and they're just responding to what's being communicated to them. Right. It's like, here's this, you know, pleasant looking thing for my viewing pleasure. Do you not want me to respond to this or do you want me to respond to this? And yeah, to, to pick and choose and to, to to insist that, oh no, it's only men who, you know, are on our level or above should we be getting responses from is wishful thinking at best. Right. And in this movie, it's sort of, played out with uh, Vince Vaughn being the more desirable of the two guys between him and Favreau. And even uh, like when they do approach women, they're like, well, what kind of car do you drive? And when he says uh, a Cavalier, a a red Cavalier, they like totally ignore him. (laughs) They just like shut him down like he doesn't exist. And that's another one of those things like he wasn't deemed worthy enough of her attention because he's not financially successful uh, or tall and gregarious and good looking like, like Vaughn is in contrast. Yeah, and that would be, an, a, I think, a completely perfect example of female hypergamy, where they're constantly looking to ladder up in terms of social hierarchy, and either with you know a, a wealthier person or an extremely attractive person or a very famous person, right? Or no. at least higher than them, right? And and a lot of that is probably like a drive to be able to provide for offspring, right? Like they're seeking Certainly. quality and security and prov- provision of you know resources for raising younglings absolutely 
can this guy provide for the family? Are these kids going to be retarded or are they going to be viable offspring stout? Are they going to be able to succeed? All those things are going running in the back of your head. You're not necessarily thinking about them overtly, maybe all the time, but they're when you're evaluating a potential mate, you are making those discriminatory judgments which are problematic, Daniel. I'm so triggered right now. <laughs> right. But well, you're talking to me a bit about puppy dogs and ice cream and, and you know, maybe we should do an after-school special like drugs are bad or Jimmy eats something or something like that. Um, so not sure exactly where I want to take this, uh, the pancakes in the age of enlightenment, but how did you feel about Vaughn presenting himself like I'm a producer? How they were lying the whole time. <laughs> I might've told, told her I'm a race car driver. I don't even know, you know, like that feels a little bit fraudulent though. He is playing that game, right. Of that underlying, you know, who's providing, but also who's fun and playful, which bites him in the ass at the very end. Cause he's making the goo goo eyes with this girl and then reveal it's, she's doing it to her kid, her infant, <laughs> which I thought was hilarious. Well, if you recall, and I'm sure you do, because you're on this podcast with me, uh, we've mentioned in the past how all dating is essentially inherently fraudulent. And if you want to eliminate fraud, you'd have to eliminate all dating entirely. Well, they're well on their way to doing that, by the way. It indeed. Seems. Indeed. Um, because, you know, as you present yourself in a date, you're always, you know, presenting like your best possible self, which is, you know, the majority of the time you're probably wanting to sit on the couch and watch TV or you know, do some kind of self-indulgent activity instead of, you know, presenting yourself as this fun, happy person all the time. You're not like that all the time. And nobody, everybody knows it, but they still want to be lied to a little bit when they're dating. Yeah. It's got to start out being fun. And I've heard that this theory is you want to do something exciting on a first date or a first couple of dates so that the adrenaline and the high that they get, they associate that with you like Pavlovian style, like they're a dog and a dinner bell. Yeah, that's using science to get laid. It's true. <laughs> uh, but yeah, if, if, you, if you jack up the adrenaline level for the first couple of dates, then that sort of carries with you on, on future dates so that you can get through that transition of where you're not quite holding farts in anymore, right? Because like in the first like five, six dates, you're not going to like fart in front of the girl. But after a few months, you're like, you let them rip and, and maybe you give her a covered wagon, you know, give her the Dutch oven or something. <laughs> We're keeping it real here on the podcast. I appreciate that, Daniel. Yes. Well, I didn't get the pilot. So now I'm goofy. Send more money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I had a little bit of an issue with the amount of fraud that they were using um, clearly they were feeling some kind of a pressure to f be fraudulent, but that doesn't, that's no excuse as far as I'm concerned. Um, but I also, you know, like I said, I wasn't on board with these characters in the first place. I found them unlikable to, from the get go. And then when they were lying on top of that, I'm like, yeah, screw these guys. I mean, I, I empathize with their position. You know, they're not the most successful people and yet they're still trying to get laid and be out there and have a good time and meet people. But, you know, they were meeting people that wouldn't even be interested in talking to them unless they were successful. So then they felt that pressure to lie about their success. I'd say maybe they're looking in the wrong place. Maybe they're trying to talk to the wrong people, but you know, they're in Los Angeles, Hollywood area. It's maybe not the place to go if you're looking for like a real kind of a person. I don't know. Yeah, I have heard that the people in LA are, and this is a huge generalization, but like a bit vapid and a bit um, surface nice, but then never follow through kind of a deal. I mean, it's like a, a bit of a stereotype, but uh, I, I think that maybe there's a little bit of a nugget or a kernel of truth to it. Well, it's like the scene where the guy comes up to him, they're at the party, and then a guy comes up to Favreau and he's like, hey, buddy, how's it going? Oh, yeah. And then there's like, who the hell is that? And he's like, 
have no idea. Yeah, but the guy did know who Favreau was. So at least there was a, you know, just Favreau didn't care enough about that initial inter interaction to remember him at all. Was that the case? Perhaps that was, but it was still a whole lot of fake, you know, happy and, oh, great to see you and blah, 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 instead of being like, I don't remember you. What's your name? Right. Know. Yeah, yeah. There, there was no like, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I don't remember you. You seem like a nice guy. Where did we meet? You know, something like that. But I guess right. that's more of a, that's a bit of too much of an admission of like, maybe it's more rude to admit that you don't remember them than to give them the illusion that you do remember them, which is actually more of a lie. <laughs> it just seems like everybody's putting on fake airs to try and pretend to be successful. And so you're kind of like faking it till they're making it. I, I don't know. But the whole kind of society that this movie kind of presented as existing was kind of distasteful to me. So yeah. Well, I mean, you were kind of into that Judy Garland thing, right? So I mean, does that make you some kind of a fag? Another quote that <laughs> didn't hit me when I was watching the movie, but apparently you thought it was Great. I thought it was hilarious. I thought it was hilarious. And it's also another one of those, this whole movie is is probably something that really couldn't be made today because of a lot of the language and the uh, the whole, like we talked about the Me Too thing. Like they would probably equate a lot of what Vince Vaughn does in this as rape, like elevator rape or like, I don't even know like how this all works anymore. But um, with the whole uh, Kavanaugh confirmation hearing where something maybe might've happened, but nothing actually happened, but she doesn't remember. And then it became this whole dividing thing. It's It was the, the outrage of the week, right? Or a, a few weeks. And now, now the latest outrage is, of course, uh, Elizabeth Warren trying to put to rest the um, uh, her American Indian heritage question. Come on, with, man. Focahontas is hilarious. I'm sorry. That's... She is she is one 1,024th, maybe North or South American Indian. <laughs> maybe. Uh, which I saw this great, um, you know, Lando Lakes, like butter carton. It says Lando fakes and it's 1,124th real butter. It's got Elizabeth Warren wearing a headdress. Well, I appreciated the, uh, the Babylon Bee article that came out and said that um, Hillary Clinton was only half alien lizard person. <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty funny. <laughs> oh, man. So, yeah, that's the other, you know, that's the latest outrage of the week or whatever partisan thing. It's, it's uh, going to divide everyone on, right? And what's really weird is that she volunteered this information and treated it as if it was vindication of her allegations of her of her proclaiming her heritage in the past like this was a total justification and vindication and all the leftists that i'm still you know friends with on facebook are like oh yeah yep she's great oh yep this will this will shut down donald trump's attacks on her as pocahontas and i'm like are you are you kidding me yeah it, uh, it seems strangely disingenuous that there's very little reality like if i was a lefty person and this story maybe i'm full of shit right now but it seems like that if the evidence came out that she was one 1024th maybe something and that was legitimate of anything like everybody is one one twenty thousand for something like i'm one probably one one thousandth sub-saharan african and i can tell actually by your <laughs> complexion here on the screen that's right you can i've always been very dark-skinned it's part of my heritage i don't know man i since when do they make sense? It's very partisan defenses. There's a lot of partisan attacks, but I, I kind of just divorce myself of all that. I mean, it's, it's kind of fun kind of theater to watch, but it's all so ridiculous. I mean, are these any kind of real problems in the world? I mean, yeah, I understand. She said, came out and made some ridiculous claim and he made fun of her for it. And then, so then the, the left's answer is to not admit they were wrong. He admits the, the left's answer is to double down. That's right. Always double call down back. on 11. Call back. 
Thanks. Always double down on one 1,024th. <laughs> That's right. It's like splitting aces. <laughs> it's like splitting aces. You always double down on one 1,024th, which is just ridiculous to me. But, you know, this is not the most ridiculous thing the left crazy left has ever done. But it seems yeah. to be spreading. Like, even if your normal left Facebook friends are doing it, maybe this infection is, you know, spreading faster than we thought. Well, it, it, it seems to be approaching fatal. I don't know. Because it's been a solid 23 months of just outrage after outrage after outrage after outrage. Every week, some new outrage, the end of the world, the worst thing ever, just constantly keyed up. And I just don't know how anyone can sustain being that wound up. Yeah, what do you think the average blood pressure on the left is? It's got to be dangerous. Oh, yeah, it's got to be dangerously high. (laughs) I don't know. But but also very low in iron because aren't they all vegans or something? It's got to be just exhausting to constantly be outraged and angry over every little thing that he does. I don't know. I'm upset that he's a psychotic murderer, but all presidents are psychotic murderers, so it's hard to get upset about it. I don't know. Yeah, the yeah same. I mean, you'd be hard pressed to really see much of a difference when it comes to foreign policy between any of these administrations and. I mean, if the only thing that I really like about Trump is that he does troll pretty hard and people lose their shit over it. And, and that's at least entertaining. Yeah, what I thought was strange, uh, and maybe this is only just in my little world, but when he calls out the mainstream media for being a pack of liars, which they have been caught, you know, so many times. And then the retractions are always like on page 12 at the bottom and nobody ever remembers the retractions. And there seems to be this era, uh, you know, this um, level of credibility with the mainstream media that exists on the left where everybody else is like completely hip to the game that no, you guys are a bunch of partisan hacks and you're a pack of liars a lot of the time. But how does the left not see it? Oh, oh, is that a dog whistle there, Johnson? I dog whistle white supremacy and racism all the time. What are you talking about? Because you said Nazi. I'm on to you. No, yeah, it it is it is kind of funny because when I do get into these Facebook debates with people, and I'm trying to quit, I really am. Um, they often question sources, right? Like, oh, that's some site I've never heard of, you know. So they disparage the source, or if it's a quote from somebody, they disparage the person who the quote is by, and not taking on the content of the article or the study or the quote itself. What's being presented as the point. They totally just gloss that over. Quick diversion. Oh, that's from this place I've never heard of? Disregarded. Well, that's from this guy who I've heard from this person over here that he's an evil person for whatever reason? Discarded. You know what I mean? And it's so useless and so um, pointless. But I've got a solution. This is my idiocracy speech here. I've got a solution. Uh, I have a Facebook page for Daniel Elwood, the real Daniel Elwood, facebook.com slash blah, blah, blah. I'll post the link down below. The pinned post is probably 20 to 25 articles that uh, run counter to usual leftist uh, positions or arguments on things, but they're all from left sources or mainstream sources. So I did this the other day. I got this guy uh, in a little mini debate and I sent him like something from a natural news website, you know, and the the point was valid, but he was like, what the hell is this website? So I said, oh, you want mainstream sources? All right, here you go. Post, 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 like nine posts, all destroying his argument, all from Vox, HuffPo, MSNBC, et cetera, et cetera. And it was beautiful because it was like this volley, serve, smash. I'm glad you are finding value in debating people online. I guess somebody's got to do it. Um, you know, hopefully you're not wasting too much time doing it. But you know, it, it sounds like that. that's a fun, fun time. 
Fun time. Now, do, you, <laughs> do you have anything else you want to talk about with this movie? Maybe the video game thing you said you want to talk about. Yeah, Superfan99 over here wants to uh, talk about the video game, the video game violence, because in the movie, they, they play the hockey game and Sue, the boy named Sue's character, loves the Kings uh, who have Wayne Gretzky as their good player, best player. And he took them all the way to the cup against the computer. And he and Vince Vaughn are playing. And he Vaughn is saying, oh, you know, they, they took all the fighting out of the game. And Favre's like, well, why'd they do that? Oh, kids are hitting each other or something. And so, you know, it's the whole like 80s, 90s blaming music and blaming video games for violence and people doing bad things. And that was like sort of the conservative, at least in my opinion at the time, it was conservatives trying to impose a morality on people uh, through censorship and uh, warning labels and things like that. So uh, the, the response to the video games being violent, they took the fighting out. But there was a cheat or what do you call it, like a Easter egg where you could take down a player and make their little heads bleed in this game. And look, little Wayne's legs are shaking and he's, his head's bleeding on the ice. So uh, I just wanted to bring that up because because I think it's an interesting point. Um, actually, out where I live, there's somebody who has one of those, you know, homemade signs um, where they're like ranting about something. And they go, uh, why is there so much video game violence equal school violence? Question mark. You know, like they're trying to make this point that, that they're blaming culture and video games on people being violent. And I think, you know, maybe there's a little bit of um, maybe it makes it easier or, or maybe you kind of get practice in playing the game and then it becomes easier to do it in real life or something. But I don't know what's your take on on this stuff uh, as we're talking about the finesse team that Vaughn calls. No, they're a they're a fucking bitch team. That's that quote. I wondered where that was from. <laughs> the first thing you texted me right before we started the show was they're a fucking bitch team. I'm like, Okay, I know that's a quote, but I don't remember that. All right. Yeah, so um, you're right. I remember the conservatives complaining about it. They started off, well, actually, it goes back really far. I'm sure it goes back to before our time, definitely before our time, because back in the days of like the 40s and the 50s, and I'm sure it probably goes back before this, but I don't know for a fact, because there wasn't really media before this. I mean, there were books, but I don't remember anybody you know, complaining about, I mean, the books were banned. They were banned and they had book burnings. Um, I don't know, remember exactly. Usually the the charge was something about morality, like this contains lewd material and we need to get it out of you because this is going to corrupt our youth. So people have been saying this since as long as there's been, you know, any kind of media to complain about probably because um, they were definitely talking about it in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s with comic books. Comic books used to be the big media that kids consumed. Oh, and then there was the comic book code, which was to... The comic book code, which, which was the big response to that, which made it so that char comic book characters couldn't, you know, kill anybody. Like back in the 30s and the 40s, like Batman would kill people all the time. And then the comic book kid came out and then all of a sudden Batman didn't kill anybody anymore. And he had this strong moral ethical code to never kill. And um, yeah, the comic book code is really restrictive. It stopped all kinds of creative things from happening. You had to get your comics by the censors, essentially. The comic book, you know, this board that you had to pay to have your comic book. So they're like the MPAA. Reviewed. Yeah, like the MPAA that would watch your movie and decide if, you know, you show a boob for more than two seconds, this movie can't be shown. This is getting an R rating or an X rating or whatever, and we're going to decide that your movie's not going to make any money. Right. I remember uh, we talked about The Aviator uh, about a year ago, and, and Howard Hughes was making a movie, and he got his uh, movie past the censors by basically confronting them and showing all the things that they had allowed 
allowed before. So it was like this incremental creep. Well, if you allow this, you have to allow what I'm doing. Right. And that's, and that's been the argument against those things ever since. Like you used to not be able to say shit on TV. And then South Park came out and did the night of a thousand shits. And, you know, you used to not be able to say bitch or any number of other words on TV, but now you can because of the slow incrementalism that is constantly getting, you know, as society gets more permissive of these things, it's not like they have some hard and fast rules with thou shalt not, you know, do X, Y, or Z. It's like, well, what does society find permissive at this point? But back in the day, you know, in the 80s, after the comic books and they had their big outrage, then there was the outrage in the 80s with gangster rap. I'm sure you remember all that. And metal music like Judas Priest. Yep. And Marilyn Manson in the 90s. And he got blamed for like Columbine. And then, you know, and then even in the 90s, when like Mortal Kombat came out, they had to like Super Nintendo didn't have the blood because, you know, they changed it all the blood to sweat. It was like gray. So it was all sweat getting knocked off of you. And like when your head popped off, like sweat came out super realistic. But, you know, you didn't want to have kids killing each other in the streets because they'd before we'd be performing fatalities on each other. If there was blood in the game, I, you know, I, it's, it's funny to see people make the argument that art influences people to be bad. Now, certainly I think if you're more predisposed to be bad or do bad things or, you know, have an incident where you're mentally unstable and you're going to lash out and do whatever, maybe you've been conditioned to, you know, find it more permissive to do that sort of thing. But because you've been watching X, Y, or Z, you know, you've been desensitized to it. I guess that's how the argument goes. Like I was just having lunch with a friend today who went to to a conference where it was a medical conference and he was like a dentist. The dentist was talking and without warning, he shows this slide of a guy with like his face peeled off and like his jaw peeled back and like his jaw removed and like he was talking about whatever. And it's like, dude, (laughs) you got to warn me for that shit. It's like going straight Hellraiser. But, you know, he was like super desensitized to it. The audience was majority doctors and those kind of people. And they're like, oh, yeah, uh-huh, yeah, okay. But my friend was like, you know, trying to hold her lunch in because this is her first medical conference and she wasn't expecting that sort of thing. So you can definitely get desensitized to gore and, you know, that, you know, different imagery. So are you making an argument for trigger warnings? Because I usually make fun of no. them. No, I'm but not. I do think that there is a little bit of no, because you're an adult, have an awareness of what you're getting yourself into. If you want to alert someone to the fact that there is like, you know, as people put a rating before a movie, this movie contains X, Y, and Z. You might not want to bring your four-year-old to it. I appreciate that. That's more market information to my consumer nature. Yeah, I'm not saying it, it should be required. I'm just saying it's appreciated so that you don't walk in and someone's face is peeled off and you're like, goo. Well, I think that kind of word would get around and that sort of material would, you know, you'd eventually become hip to it. I think if you don't get exposed to things that, you know, do challenge you, you do become more of a snowflake. And then you are less and less able to cope with those kinds of situations. Well, and then the things that people seem to get so upset about now are like certain words and like references to things because they're, it has like the, the letters M-A-N in it or something like that. Like people get triggered and upset by those types of things. And that's just ridiculous. That's like college campus. Like they're being insulated from being confronted from any intellectual uh, rigor or any questioning of their little safe bubble. And that is, yeah, it's, it's the most privileged thing you could possibly ever complain about my life is so fantastic that this is what i have to complain about right yeah they're the little bubble people and it's it's just bizarre 
So that, I think that was pretty good on on the uh, video game violence. And I do want to have the Gretzky quote brought up where he says, you miss 90 or you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. And I, I like that quote because it's like, you got to take some risks out there. And I liken the characters in this movie to taking on entrepreneurial risk in meeting women. One more thing before we move on from the video game thing. I don't want to imply that I think that it's a direct line. Like if you grow up watching a bunch of scary movies or play a bunch of violent video games, then you are going to then be have a higher propensity to initiate violence on people. I don't think we have any kind of understanding when it comes to what exactly causes these sorts of outbursts in people. Um, and not that you could even predict it, you know, even if we did think we knew. But I mean, I grew up watching movies that you would not normally let a kid watch. Like I was probably like six or seven or eight, you know, between I'm probably like eight, nine, 10, 11, when I was watching like Poltergeist and Night Before Elm Street and Hellraiser and Friday the 13th and, you know, all kinds of like scary movies and whatnots. And I listened to gangster rap and I listened to all, I played video, violent video games and I'm about as peaceful a person as there is. So I know that's anecdotal evidence, but I mean, speaking from experience, it seems like you can't really draw any kind of direct line. And the idea that we're just mindless automatons that can be programmed like a computer and that one set of information is going to override another set of information, like the bad information is going to override the good information. So like if I have a belief that initiating force is wrong, but then I watch a scary movie or play a violent video game, and that's somehow going to override my deep set moral belief, I think that I think everybody would understand that that's ridiculous. And I don't know if anybody's making that argument, but I think that you could, you know, the good things in society that, you know, murder is wrong. We all understand that to be wrong. I think everybody knows that. And I think that that overrides. It's like when somebody goes out and kills a bunch of people, they know it's wrong. They don't necessarily, they, still, they think that they've been wronged, but they know that people are not going to look upon what they're doing as a good thing. Even if they think that they are getting some kind of restitution for being you know, made fun of or bullied or whatever, they know that what they are doing is in fact wrong. All right, well, I feel like we could do like a whole hour just on this type of topic, talking about culture and influence and all of those things. So perhaps we can get into it further in our Kathleen Turner Overdrive, which is bonus content that we do after the show and is available for our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to get in on that, go to lastmatters.com slash Patreon. Now, so what were you on. going to say? Okay, okay. You're going to move. You remember what you were going to go move on to? Uh, is he clean? Is he brown? <laughs> Bring him in, Michael. Come on. Come on. Uh, yeah. I, well, I was talking about the entrepreneurialism, and, and I just threw yeah, that yeah, in yeah. there. Um, that. But we can move on a little bit further because we are actually running out of time, and this place is dead anyway. But I do want to talk about the boy named Sue because the whole concept of naming the boy Sue, at least from what I recall Johnny Cash talking about, was <clears throat> that the father named the kid a, a woman's a girl's name to toughen him up because he knew he wouldn't be there as a father. And he knew that he wanted that kid to get ribbed and get like a bunch of shit for having a girl's name to be hardened to the difficulties in the world. The exact opposite of helicopter parenting, yes. Right, yeah, yeah. So does, does this make sense to you? Is this ringing a bell at all? Well, I thank you for taking the show into a place I never thought you would take it. I didn't think you were going to bring up the guy named Sue, nor would you reference the, the Johnny Cash song, which was referenced in the movie. And I am very familiar with the Boy Named Sue song. It's one of my father's favorite songs. He's a big Johnny Cash fan and a big Boy Named Sue fan. And yeah, I, I think the song is fairly true. Um, I don't know if I would ever name my son Sue, but I also don't, you know, if I couldn't be there, 
If I knew I wasn't going to be around, would I do it? Maybe not today. I don't think you necessarily need to be super tough to survive in today's society, but it doesn't hurt. Yeah, but um, naming a kid Sue wouldn't matter anymore. <laughs> like, right, 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 right. You're just a non-binary, non-gender, whatever thingamajig. So who cares? It doesn't even tell, give anybody any hints as to what gender you actually are these days. So yeah. Well, it's fluid, man. Oh, I just, I just screwed up by calling you man, man. <laughs> a bitch. All right. So related to the boy named Sue, um, I saw this meme, you know, the Oregon Trail game. We yeah. probably all played it growing up. And they said, uh, you have died of, you know, dysentery or whatever. So there's this funny meme where it's a guy talking to another guy and it says, you've died from dysentery, like talking shit to Terry and he shot you. Not nice. that Terry is necessarily a girl's name, but it sort of can be, you know, there's the Terry Hatcher and I'm sure there's like a, a million other women Terry's and whatnot. But anyway, I thought it was a little bit related. Never mind. Oh, he got away from us. This this thing, this show's getting away from me here. Um, one last thing I wanted to talk about, and then we can get into our final summary review. Oh, I actually have a lot of things. Oh man. Oh yeah, you better hurry up. Let's do a rapid fire through your notes. All right, rapid fire. What did you think of all the meta movie references that they do within the film? They talk about their favorite shots and scenes in like Goodfellas and Casino and Reservoir Dogs, and then they literally recreate each of those scenes or, or those camera shots from those various angles uh, as right. a bit of an homage. And I think that's pretty awesome. As it's like a nerd, it's a movie nerd cred thing. Yeah, it was kind of clever. I, I appreciated the Goodfellas one where they're walking in through the back through the kitchen and whatnot. I thought that one was better than the Reservoir Dogs one. For some reason, the Reservoir Dogs one is like they shot it in slow motion, but they didn't use a slow motion camera. So they just like shot, they chopped it up a regular speed. Yeah, it's like camera. super jittery and weird. Yeah. Yeah, that did not, that did not look good. Yeah. But yeah. Well, still, I appreciate that they liked film and that they liked talking about it a little bit enough to put it in their own film. That was kind of cool. Yeah. And then the scene where they're actually talking about the different shots uh, is another scene from Reservoir Dogs where they're talking about um, tipping the waitress or not. Right. And Madonna liking dicks. Right. Yes. Yes. And it, I don't know if she does anymore. I mean, who knows? But uh, but that that was also shot in that same kind of format where it's a round table and you're it's all like continuous. I don't even know like the super details about it, but it, for people who know how movies are made, they'll see that and go, holy shit, how they do that? You know, that's like amazing. Cool. All right, next. All right, next. Uh, the Dresden is the name of one of the bars, and I was going to talk about the firebombing that killed tens of thousands of civilians in Germany. Actually, I think more people died in that than in the atomic bombs, and it just gets a pass. Nobody seems to care about it, but the Dresden firebombings ordered by Churchill are evil because it was civilian populations, women and children, entire city destroyed. So that's the Dresden. Uh, moving on, continuing. Um, the, the, the scene where they're walking out of the bar and they get bumped into or they bump into these uh, hip hop bro guys, guys, these dude bro guys that they call hip hop and uh, House of Pain. And Sue pulls a gun on them. And I wanted to ask you, did you feel like this was justified? Was it self-defense? Uh, and what did you think of Vaughn and Favreau's response to Sue in the aftermath? Um, I thought that the pulling of the gun to... You know, showing that you have a gun would have been fine. Like, I am trying to de-escalate the situation, right? Like, him pointing the gun is escalating the situation. But letting the other people know that you're armed and that this situation neither needs to come to an end or violence is going to begin is, you know, escalating, you know, is de-escalating it. But pointing, pulling it out, pointing it is 
threatening to murder somebody. And so it's clear escalation, clear violation of the NAP. Um, and then Vaughn's and uh, whatever his name is, Favreau. Yeah, that guy. That guy. The other guy. The his, super their, cringy, annoying guy. Their uh, admonishment of him, I thought was a good, uh, you know, social cue. Like the way that societies operate. They, they admonish their friend. They're like, man, that was not cool. You did not need to do that. Now we got to go. I got stuff to do. You didn't need to, that was just not cool, bro. And that's, you know, where it needs to end. And he needs to know that that wasn't cool. And then, you know, later on he goes and he apologizes to House of Pain. Yeah, and, then they're, and then they're friends. And right, then they're, cool. they're playing the make little Wayne's head bleed game. Right. And then they're playing the, the hockey. So yeah, I thought that was a good anarchic way to solve a problem is done by, all right. you know, negotiations and communication. And, you know, if it had happened where like a cop was in the picture, what the cop would have done would have pulled out his gun, pointed it at Sue, you know, screened at him, you know, told him to drop the gun, get on the ground and take him off to jail and, you know, book him, arrest him, you know, put him in jail, see a judge, put him in the system, spend a lot of money when all that really needs to happen is for cooler heads to prevail, you know, admonish him a little bit, shame him a little bit, and then everything's cool. He apologizes and we move on with our lives and nobody gets hurt. Right. And and then they become friends. Now, the uh, admonishment of Sue by the Vaughn character, because Sue then lashes into Favreau and calls him weak, calls him a little bitch, says he hasn't gotten laid once since he's been here and is just like blows up at him. And Vaughn's response to that is to admonish Sue and shut him down and and stand up for his friend. That speech or that little moment, that scene was added at Vaughn's request to make him a more likable character because he needed some touch of humanity as opposed to just being this cartoonish uh, ladies man player type. And so uh, in reading on the background of this, that was added purposefully to give a more human element and a more likableness to Va Vince Vaughn's character. But the other thing that Vaughn and Favreau say to Sue is, why do you have that get? Why are you strapped? Trouble finds you in in L.A. Or, or, you know, what does he say? He says, in New York, trouble finds you. Uh, what, what are you carrying a gun for? And I thought that was that was going a bit too far. Like he's, he's basically making the argument that you don't need to have the capacity to defend yourself, where I would totally disagree with that. You should always have the means, best means with which to defend yourself uh, in, a, in a given situation. Absolutely. I completely agree 100%. And that's why I said that, you know, alerting the guys that you were armed would have helped deescalate the situation or as opposed to what he did was to escalate the situation. Right. All right. Yeah. He's got these big fucking teeth and these claws and he just doesn't know what killed a bunny. And, and the bunny's just sitting there. Anyway, uh, there's probably a few more things that we could talk about, but I do think we need to wind this down. We have been going for almost an hour, but... We'll the, save your extra notes for KTO. All right, we will do that for the Kathleen Turner Overdrive. Um, so it basically ends up where Favreau meets his girl at the bar finally, and then he's still kind of screwed up. So he calls her that night immediately and leaves her message after message. And you're speaking of escalation. They get escalatingly worse. And finally, yeah, she gets the first one's cringy, then the next one's even more cringy, and then cringy. And then by the time you just you want to turn the movie off, yeah, super cringy, desperate. And then she finally answers and says, Don't ever call me again. But then, Might after the same person would, <laughs> right? But then, after a little bit more time and um, uh, office space, tells him, You know, eventually, you, you know, you have to pretend you don't think about her, and then eventually, you really do stop thinking about her. And Vaughn or Favreau eventually does get over his girlfriend, his ex-girlfriend, ex meets the Heather Graham character doing the swing dancing, which was why the movie was called Swingers. Uh, and it actually helped latch on to the um, 
the revival of swing dancing. Swing dancing was a big deal in the mid to late 90s, 1990s, not 1890s. Yes, and this movie features the Cherry Pop and Daddies, as I recall. Go Daddy-o! That's right, it does. And this was similar to um, when we did Smoking the Bandit. CB radios were already kind of a big thing. And then Smoking the Bandit was like, all right, we're going to make CBs a feature of our movie to latch onto that popularity. And then it ended up exponentially making CBs even more popular. Similar situation here with swingers. Swing dancing was a thing that had been revitalizing in the 90s, and they put it in this movie, and the movie was popular enough to where it escalated swing dancing even more. Um, well, I could quibble with you since it only made $4 million, but I will, since you're technically correct, it could only have improved it. Well, that's correct. box office. That's not the cult uh, status of VHS and DVD and streaming services. And clearly the impact it had on your life. Cause I know you're a huge swing dancer slash swinger. Oh man. Not quite, not quite. All right. Um, the last thing I got is the resolution of the movie is Silverman's character basically telling Mike who's had this, um, breakdown after calling Nikki and leaving all those cringy messages that he needs to appreciate what he's got. He's in a, a place where he it's sunny every day here. It's nice every day. If your life sucks, then mine must be God awful. You only look at what you don't have and you're being unhappy when you should appreciate what you've got and it should motivate you to, uh, do better, right. To work harder for things that you do want in your life. So I wanted to shoehorn in this entrepreneurial message at the very end here. Do it, man. I, I'm all about the entrepreneurship. So yeah, um, let's, let me just launch right into my final summary and review then. All right, roll up, bitch, roll up. So this movie is like a vignette of two guys hanging out at a place, and then two guys hanging out at a different place, and then two guys hanging out at a different place, and then two guys hanging out at a different place. And then finally, all of a sudden, the main character hears a speech from Office Space, and then he's Mr. Confident Guy slash party boy slash cool guy and he gets the girl at the end and i didn't think that the character turn was earned i thought he was an annoying insufferable guy the whole movie and then until the very end where i think the very end the final was well written between heather graham and favreau they seem to actually have some chemistry and if the movie had been more about that given me more of that and less about the guys hanging out being jerks and unlikable insufferable assholes i probably would have enjoyed it more um but since the movie was more about his attempt to get over his girlfriend uh, it it's it just didn't seem like that was earned it just seemed like he he pined after his girlfriend the whole movie and it was insufferable to listen to him do that and then all of a sudden he gets one speech and then he's mr cool guy so the script as a, like a character development arc story didn't work for me the comedy should have fallen back on the comedy and like and there was one scene one thing that made me laugh and i don't remember what it was but i remember laughing one time so it's not the end of the world um vaughn is kind of a charming guy and he has a bit of charisma so even when he's playing a jerk you know you can still like to watch him he's that good and this is back when he was skinny so you know and young and whatever and favreau is also young and skinny so it's kind of fun to see him back in the day, but uh, I believe this was written by Favreau and, you know, he's got, so, yeah. yeah. So I can see how this is kind of his early work. You know, he's, he made some friends in Hollywood and they wanted to get together and they scrabbled up some money and they got some investors and, you know, they made a movie and it worked out for him and it's, it's watchable, you know, and they pay some homage to some other things. And, but I don't think this works really. Um, 
it seems like it was a better movie at its time. Like maybe if I was really into swing dancing, maybe I would like it better. I remember when swing dancing was a thing and I remember having the Cherry Pop and Daddy CD, but, or Zoot Suit, right? Was that the name of the movie, the album? I don't know. But um, yeah, I'm going to give this movie a five out of 10. Wow, and even five. All right. Well, that that makes me a little bit sad. I felt like that this was maybe a bit more of a trip down nostalgia lane for me uh, in many respects because it came out 96 and and that was when I reached uh, the uh, legal adulthood, which really is kind of arbitrary in a way. But it um, also stuck with me over the course of my 20s because I would go back to this well and watch it because I really enjoyed the Favreau character or sorry, the Vince Vaughn character uh, and just his uh, his mannerisms and his charm and his, his no fear of getting into these conversations. And I felt like, in a way, I've sort of been each of the guys in this movie at some point in my life, uh, like taken on, kind of been in that similar situation, kind of I've been that heartbroken guy, I've been the um, able to go and talk to girls and be a good wingman. Um, so it sort of stuck with me a bit more. And so I have fond memories of this movie, and I still think it holds up pretty well. I, I think the turn is believable because he... Favreau is going through this, you know, emotional despair, but time does heal it. And getting out and doing things and making yourself busy and enjoying time with your friends does help you recover from those types of situations. And then when you, you know, return to normal, you you grow from that experience. And so when, like you said, Favreau becomes more uh, charming and, and able to actually converse with Lorraine like the quiche, and he talks about that whole, you know, you can do whatever you want, and there's like some chemistry and some flirtiness going on. It's believable to me because my boy's all grown up. And then you get the same thing with uh, with Vaughn where he gets, um, you know, at the tail end, he's making the goo goo gaga eyes with that one woman uh, at the booth and gets embarrassed because she's doing that to her kid. And so that is the switch in trajectory where Vaughn is now um, kind of the embarrassed and, and ashamed type person. And then they take that same trajectory into the next movie, Made, called Made. And I think it came out uh, five years later, so 2001. And they've got the Red Dragon with Puff Daddy, like we are talking about earlier. And I think that that might be a movie worth doing at some point in the future. But maybe, maybe I can talk into it over, over, over some beers or something. But anyway, uh, I have a much higher opinion of this movie. I'm going to go with an 8.6. For Swingers, came out in 1996, and uh, I, I enjoyed it. Watched it with my wife the other night. Uh, I don't know if she liked it. Um, she'll probably let me know in a moment here. But anyway, 8.6. So, Robert, before we wind down, let's talk yeah, about buddy. the next item up for bid because we're going to be doing something related to some spooky, scary uh, Halloween type yeah. stuff. Yeah, under his original remake of a, well, he turned a movie that was originally, I guess the original thing wasn't quite what he turned it into from what I understand. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really interesting, great film that holds up. It's got a lot of, uh, I believe it's Stan Winston who did a lot of the great creature effects that are a bit kind of over the top, but you know, still hold up for the, um, and then there was that, I think 2011, they made a prequel to the thing. It was essentially just a remake, but technically a prequel. It's an interesting series of films. And uh, yeah, I, I never get tired of watching it. I've seen it a couple of times and um, 
I think, have you seen it before, Daniel? No, I have not. And, and just for clarity, for me and for the audience, this is going to be the John Carpenter, like 1983 version that we're going to be doing. Yeah, it's like either 80, 81, 82, 83, whatever it is. It's, but it's early, yeah. The original, okay. not the original, original, like in the 40s or the 50s, whatever that one was, but yeah. All right. So the next movie on The Last Nighters, The Thing from the early 80s. So that's all the time we have for this show. So thank you guys for joining us uh, for our episode on Swingers. We appreciate you. And if you want to support the show, go to lastnighters.com slash Patreon. And uh, we'll say good night from last night.